Welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Thanks for joining me again. Today's guest is Tom Dawkins. He is the co-founder and CEO of Start Some Good, a social enterprise which helps people design, launch and grow social impact projects. And he's also the co-founder of Lend for Good, a new crowd lending platform for growth-ready impact enterprises. Start Some Good provides fundraising and community infrastructure for social entrepreneurs and designs and delivers impact accelerators and capability building programs for partners, including Optus, ING, the United Nations Development Program and the City of Sydney. Tom is the host of the Good Hustle Social Enterprise Design course, which has graduated over 200 social enterprise founders. The goal is to give emerging social entrepreneurs the skills they need to successfully launch and run their impact businesses, including the strength of purpose and resilience to survive the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey. Tom was previously the founder of the youth not-for-profit Vibewire, the first digital communications director for Ahsoka in Washington, D.C., and the founding program director of the Australian Changemakers Festival, as well as being the founding director of the Social Enterprise Council of New South Wales and the ACT. Tom is also a director of the Centre for Social Impact. Had a great chat with Tom around leadership and its intersection with social enterprise and innovation. I hope you enjoy today's podcast, but enough from me and I'll hand over to Tom. Tom, thanks for joining me today, mate. Now, the the purpose of Talking Leadership TV, as as my guests will know, and, and we've had a discussion offline, is to talk all things leadership. And I'm particularly interested in how that uh, intersects with innovation and social enterprise, which is your field um, of expertise. So my question today more broadly is how do these things uh, intersect? But before we get into that, why work in that social enterprise space? What what um, motivates you to do that, mate? Uh, thanks. Great question, Eric. And thanks so much for, for having me. It's really great to be on the show. Um, look, I, I kind of discovered social enterprise in the way that many people do because it solved a problem I had in funding the work, that I, the, the kind of social change work I wanted to do. I, I, I stumbled into it, really. I didn't, I didn't know anything about social enterprise, but I set up my first, well, by the time I finished university, I'd set up three nonprofits, all of them about uh, mobilizing young people as more active citizens in, in different forms. The first, a high school student organization, the second, a university student organization. And then midway through uni, launched a nonprofit called Vibewire Youth Services, which is still around today. It's now 23 years old or something crazy like that. I led it for the first eight years. And Vibewire was all about giving younger Australians, by which we meant under 30, so young adults, um, opportunities to you know develop their insights into into social issues and, and, and trends to become more active and effective citizens and how they created change both through the political process and outside it through volunteering and social entrepreneurship and so on um and and fundamentally though it was really hard to raise money for uh now some of that is you know just the challenges of being a university student who really doesn't know much about anything trying to convince people to give you money part of that very much was the challenge of innovation that we were trying to mobilize our generation in new ways using technology as a, as a focus and culture and storytelling and so on. Um, and it wasn't proven that that would work, you know, the, the, the innovation challenge that I know we're going to talk more about later. Um, and thirdly, we, we weren't tax deductible because there actually isn't a, a tax deductible char- uh, charitable category for making a better democracy in Australia. You know, we weren't enough of an education organization or enough of an arts organization or enough of a kind of service provider to achieve tax beneficial tax status for any of them 
Um, and that just made fundraising challenging. And I just, you know, been a problem solver and I guess naturally entrepreneurial was just casting around trying to figure out who would pay for this, who would, who, who would pay, you know, who, who would support the kind of projects we wanted to run. And over time discovered that there's this whole set of people who will potentially, you know, or a whole different way to think about funding projects, which is not just by, you know, writing an application or, or delivering a single pitch and hoping someone will write a check, not that even then anyone wrote checks, but, you know, will deliver those funds, but rather, you know, who are you creating value for directly and are they willing to pay for that value? And so by the time I left, we were about two thirds earned revenue, a mix of both participant pay. We opened the first co-working space in Australia, for instance, whatever fish burners may say, we opened two years ahead of them. Um, and so that was a user paid model in the in the typical co-working space way. But we also did a lot of work for, you know, we, we discovered sponsorship as a business model. So we had a youth oriented film festival that toured around the country in partnership with Dendi Cinemas that was sponsored by corporate partners because, you know, youth culture, very trendy, um, great chance to advertise at them um, and also service provision. So we had become experts at how you communicate with and engage kind of, uh, you know, more purpose-driven young Australians and there were lots of other organizations out there who really wanted to engage those people so we ran a major youth consultative process for the city of Brisbane we did work for the Human Rights Commission in New South Wales in terms of engaging young people so a real blend of different service provision but all of that is the social enterprise model which is can you deliver an actual business service you know can you create value for someone that they will pay for but in the course of the creation of that value or the type of value that is created there's all there's a broad there's there's broader value created for the community, the environment, and future generations. Um, and so stumbled on IO is let's say we invented the social enterprise and, and we did for ourselves. We were the, you know, the millionth person to think of it. Um, but it's just another example of how, you know, social enterprise is one of those ideas that inevitably comes up. People in some ways don't it helps, you know, if you explain it to people as we're talking about it now, it often, you know, it often helps. But in many ways, people naturally orient can confine their way to it very often just through that process of trying to figure out how to get things done, how to solve problems and try to figure out who the stakeholders and potential partners for that might be. Um, and so that's what I guess led, led me into um, more of that social enterprise focus. And I then moved to the US for four years and that was a real focus of my time over there for the first two years working for an organization called Ashoka, who, who literally invented the phrase social entrepreneurship 50 years ago. So literally the first organization on earth to really be talking about describing this stuff. Um, and then two years in San Francisco working for a innovation for good um, lab in Silicon Valley called Hope Lab. Um, and not so much my experience at Hope Lab, but just being in San Francisco for those two years taught me so much about what, what supporting innovation looks like and can feel like. And that really inspired the launch of Starts and Good 12 years ago while I was living in San Francisco to try and take some of those uh, lessons, learnings and approaches from the commercial startup world and, and apply them to people doing social innovation and, and social enterprise startups. Yeah, thank you. That That's a great um, foundational definition of where the so social enterprise sort of sits and, and um looks like you were earmarked to to be in this industry or this this area of life from from the start I guess but let me ask you one thing because I've, I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurial individuals in my podcasting and I want to ask you given that you're in the mix um, do you think the people that, that do the kind of work that you do and lead in the way that you do are entrepreneurial by nature they're entrepreneurs by any other name it, is that does that ring true for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I you know, I don't know where I, where I sit exactly on the nature versus nurture debate when it comes to entrepreneurialism. I think, you know, I think it's obviously a product of, you know, maybe there are elements of your fundamental nature and characteristic. I believe they, they do believe there's, you know, some hard-coded risk aversion versus risk tolerance in people. So there's got to be a certain element of risk tolerance, but but that's not to say that someone who might be kind of coded in that way slightly differently couldn't overcome that in certain circumstances. So it's certainly also a matter of your, you know, the encouragement, the culture you're in, um, you know, the, the opportunity you have. And, and that's really what I think what struck me in San Francisco, that just just how different it felt and how much more encouraging that was and how now I didn't arrive in San Francisco planning to start another startup myself. I mean, I was taking up a new job. I had a sponsored working visa. I had enough to do and a great city and a great state to explore. The kind of, in some ways, on an intellectual level, the last thing I needed was some massive side hustle to keep me super stressed and busy. Um, but but there's just, you know, there really is something almost in the water there that that you meet so many people who are pursuing a dream. Everyone's always asking you what you're working on. Everyone's super excited about whatever your idea or, or you know, you should do that. You should, you know, you should try that, that you find yourself potentially, thanks to that context and that surrounding, doing something that you might not in different circumstances. I mean, as another little example, because I think about this a lot, one of my close friends at university was the first member of her family to go to university. Um, I, on my dad's side of my family, I'm one of 14 cousins, and I'm the least educated member of my generation. I only have an undergraduate degree. Literally every other member of my generation has at least honours, and almost all of them have masters or double degree, and we have three PhDs. You know, so like a really highly educated family, both my my parents went to university. And and I always used to think about how different the context of that decision was. Like, it's not just about what your natural inclination is. It's, I think context is so important. But for me, it wasn't even a decision. To not go to university would have been a massive decision, would have been, you know, quite, you know, would, would, have, would, would have possibly, my parents would have supported that as well. This is the other important context, super supportive parents who were willing to let me try and fail and that that creates a safety net and that's to me what privilege is in many ways is the fact that you have the ability to, to fail failure to me doesn't cost me as much you know in the sense that I have a supportive family I, I couldn't find myself on the streets I don't believe you know there, there, there'd be people who would help me no matter how what happened other people don't have that and so you know for me I spent as much time thinking about whether to go to university as I spent thinking about whether to do year 11 you know in theory you can finish high school after year 10 but it never it never crossed my mind for even a split second that that was that wasn't a real decision and in the same way you know university just felt like year 13 like i'm not i'm not why would i i'm not dropping like who drops out at this stage either whereas of course for my friend it was a massive she had to like visualize something that no one around her had done and then figure out how to do it you know and it was just it was such a it was such a bigger decision for her and so i think about that a lot in, in the context of entrepreneurship as well that you know while i do think there is a, a strong personal element i think all of that is more deeply affected can only emerge essentially in the right context the right environment and and if we build a more supportive environment and this is the work where you know our mission that starts in good that if you create a, a, a slightly more supportive environment you offer more opportunities you lower the barriers slightly we never claim that we make entrepreneurship or starting a social enterprise easy that's impossible it's really hard but you can make it a little bit easier in important in important ways at important stages um, and that if you do that all sorts of new people will emerge with great ideas around the work that needs doing um, and who maybe don't think of themselves as entrepreneurs, maybe wouldn't, if you ask them, are you an entrepreneur person, often would say no. But 
but there's something that they've decided needs to be fixed in the world and you know their own personal purpose plus that context and opportunity has provided them with the the moment where they feel like they can actually try and make that happen yeah that that's um that's an amazingly interesting response look i'm i'm not I'm definitely not in the uh, school of labeling people for the sake of doing it. It just helps me to categorize in my own mind because I'm a simple, I'm a simple human being. So I need categories to help me, help me yeah. uh, deal with the world that I uh, that I deal <clears throat> with. And um, yeah, I, I just I just see it. It's fascinating for my Australian guests that have been on the podcast that have gone to America and uh, been immersed in that um, that culture around entrepreneurship, whether it's social or for profit. In America, it's quite a different bag than Australia. I think they live and breathe. What's your thing? What are you doing? What's your project? Whereas I think in Oz, it's a little different. And um, to get back to your beginning point around levels of education, I I, I think it's it's um, it's horses for courses. So for me, if, if you're inclined to be an academic, you will pursue that pathway. If you're not um, an academic uh, pathway or even getting TAFE, qualifications whatever the level of qualification mm. is you're doing it for the end point so if there was a certificate in um, how to start a social enterprise if those that are that way oriented will go mm. in and do it and hopefully if they're listening to this discussion will know that it isn't easy but there are ways to start and yeah. there are people that can, that can um potentially point you to what are the pitfalls because if you're trying to start something that hasn't been started before I think you're going to make as many uh kick as many goals as have as many hiccups along that process and it sounds like you've been there and done a lot of that that does that does that ring true for you mate no absolutely and that's a big part of you know the work we do these days is is through things like we have we have a social enterprise design course there are others out there but ours is called good hustle um and it's exactly that idea that we think there are some everything's different in a way you know i mean it, like part of what's great i think about the social enterprise movement in general is lots of grassroots entrepreneurs you know that it's not a world dominated some people probably want it to be that it will be a little bit more hard driving business savvy if it was you know more mbas and what have you but it's often people with a lived experience which i think is incredibly valuable who you know who, who've been through something seen something have an insight and, and are trying to build you know a, a kind of in some ways a custom designed vehicle to deliver that impact but in a sustainable way long term using using you know using business using using the market as as a as a sustainability tool or, or a core part of that strategy um and so they're, they're always different but they're also very similar that there's really consistent core elements and so one of the principles of our good hustle course for instance is that provides what we say is kind of the core it, it runs through the core foundational elements of every successful social enterprise so your particular theory of change might be different, but every social enterprise has to have a theory of change or an impact model, depending on what language you want to use. Obviously, to be an, an enterprise, you also need a business model. And again, there are certain key, you know, there's a certain startup science around how you can build successful business models, human-centered design, you know, iter- testing and iteration and so on. And, and much like in any good startup course, while the specifics of that are different, often the, the mechanisms or the approach it can be applied um, broadly across, you know, almost any almost any context um you know every entrepreneur we, we cover personal self-care sustainability is it because every entre- every founder is going to struggle with personal sustainability uh we we cover pitch because everyone needs a pitch um we don't cover kind of uh, we don't spend as much time for instance on on legal structures because those options vary based on jurisdiction so it's impossible to do a universal 
descriptor, we talk a little bit about pros and cons of for-profit versus non-profit structures, because um, this is often a point of confusion in the social enterprise, or for people who are, are getting into the social enterprise world, is that social enterprise is, is, is not actually about a particular legal structure. You can have any legal structure, it could be a for-profit, a non-profit, a cooperative, a sole trader. Um, social enterprise is about a doing, you know, doing business in a way that puts impact at the heart and, and has a very clearly articulated impact model. We make impact by, but also we make money by, and sometimes those are one and the same, and sometimes they're not. You know, sometimes you make money by selling coffees, but you make impact by employing people to make those coffees who are recently arrived refugees getting their first work experience in Australia. So it's often a matter of, you know, the impact model. In our case, they are one and the same. How do we make money? We help people raise money or we provide, you know, we build their capacity through courses. How do we make impact? We help people raise money or we build their capacity through our courses. Um, so for us, those are one and the same. But even that brings up its own tricky trade-offs. You know, if the way you make the money is the way you make your your impact, there's all, always a little bit of a, you know, uh, uh, always a bit of a trade-off between those things. You know, we, we, we increase our impact by giving more people access to these opportunities. That's our core mission yeah shade, Equally, shade, if shade we gave it all away we wouldn't exist yeah so <laughs> finding that balance is but that's the and that's the tricky you know that's the unique that's what's unique about social enterprise is you have to you, you have to constantly think about both of those that they are equally important and that's the difference between say an organization that is you know fundamentally about business and about profit maximization but then they do some good in addition to that they might give away one percent of those profits or they might have a staff volunteer or, um, day or they might have a foundation that does some granting all of that's great i'm not trying to disparage any of that just none of that makes you a social enterprise because to be a social enterprise versus just a i don't know a socially minded enterprise you might say not to get too fine upon it is the centrality of that impact that it's right at the heart of the business and in many ways you know equally important there's no point being profitable we would say like there's absolutely no point like in start some good being profitable if we're not also impactful we need to yeah, be profitable. No, we need to be profitable so that we can keep being impactful into the future. But we're not. But we don't want one without the other. Yeah, that makes sense, and it's a good uh, good dis- distinction there. If you're running a for profit business and you're doing things like grants or all the things you just mentioned, you're not necessarily a social enterprise, and not that. So do those like, things though. That, 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 that yeah, 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 yes. Social yes. Than <laughs> not doing those. Yeah, yeah. And if I give your grants to other, give your grants to social enterprises, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> sponsor well, us to run a great program for them. Yeah, um, some some help in that sense. Yeah, no, I, I get that. So, look, uh, Tom, I, I want to bring us to the innovation um, mm. question and that and a definition from that social enterprise view of the world. Now, in the worlds that I've worked in, innovation has a very um, fixed can have a very fixed meaning. And uh, I come from ag and and fishery, so we talk about innovation from an industry perspective. It has specific meanings a lot of times attached to it but other times attached to different types of research for example i'm interested from that leadership leadership space perspective what does innovation look like in that social enterprise arena or at least what's your view of it i mean broadly not some not just in social enterprise but let's just talk kind of social good writ large i think there's the voice the sector has really struggled with innovation you know so innovation i mean in any context means something that's new and different from the status quo it could be a new process a new product a new market a new a, a new a new approach to marketing you know but you're doing something different from the past in order for it to be innovation and innovation by definition is things not yet proven to work one of my beliefs is that as soon as it's proven it's no longer innovation it could still be innovative 
But in terms of that kind of innovation curve, it's not true innovation yet because true innovation is always uncertain. You, you, you can't promise what the outcomes are going to be when you're innovating. As soon as you can promise what the outcome is going to be, not not innovate, not innovating anymore, could still be you know innovative, which is to say you know ahead of the the, the bulk of the market. Um, and the challenge is that traditionally the social sector always wants to fund, and I and I literally quote this from grant from grant criteria as I've seen proven models of social in a, of social innovation. And of course, proven models of social innovation is a contradiction in terms. Um, it, it would be a little bit like, and it's funny, we do it in some spaces, but not others. Um, it'd be like if we if we only if we only funded science, if the scientists could tell us up front exactly what the results of the experiment were going to be. I mean, you wouldn't need to run the experiment then. Um, so, and, and it is so different from, you know, what I experienced in San Francisco in particular, but the commercial startup world in general, which is about possibility, not certainty. Um, and in some ways, the, 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 the commercial startup world has almost the opposite bias. Um, if it's if it's too safe and too certain, you know, you're going to return. You like this is a good this is a good little business concept here. This could be this could be reasonably profitable. No one wants to invest in that. It has to at least have the possibility of monopolizing some emergent sector and earning monopoly style returns on capital um, in the future. So in some ways, the opposite bias. The the the, the commercial startup world is always trying to hit home runs, and so some of the market failure there is like perfectly good. What would be singles or or you know two you know or second by I'm mixing my sports metaphors here for different markets, but, you know, hitting singles or doubles to stick with baseball for a moment. Um, and, but for the social change sector, the preference is always the certain single over the possible home run. Um, and so, and that comes from a couple of things. Partly there's a scarcity mindset. The tradition in the social sector, no one has as much money as they think they need. And the world is very big and filled with very complex problems and challenges and so anyone who's focusing on any of those true social challenges is always on some level feeling slightly overwhelmed by the complexity and scale of that challenge and their desire to do more and more and more good. But, the, you know, how do you how do you how do you do that? Um, and so everyone feels like no matter how cashed up a given charity or foundation or how big a given government grant is, it's, it's never enough. And so in a world where it's never enough, no one wants to waste it on things that don't work. Um, lots of inverted commas here, if anyone's listening to um, the audio and not watching the video. Um, and so that creates, you know, the, and that brings us to, and you know, one of who's going to talk about this concept I call the paradox of innovation. And I really saw this in, in San Francisco because people often think that, you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley is just this incredible concentration of super smart people doing brilliant things. And, and I'm fond of telling people actually that I think Silicon Valley is the world's largest concentration of dumb ideas. But you, if you are looking for a really dumb idea, there's nowhere you'll find a dumb idea quicker than San Francisco and Silicon Bay area. Um, just like if you're looking for a really crap film, you'll find it in Hollywood. You know, you need a place that's producing lots of stuff. Um, and, you know, the reason that you find lots of dumb ideas, because that's also what innovation looks like. Innovation mostly doesn't work. It's an experiment and most experiments fail. But they're not really failure, of course, because you've ruled out one thing and that's that's incremental progress towards figuring out the right thing. Um, and so I feel like they they get that in you know in the in the commercial startup world that no one is smart enough to know upfront what's going to work. And so you even speak to the world's most successful angel investors, say, and they're like, I, I can't pick winners. I think I have a slightly higher ability to have a slightly higher percentage win percentage than maybe other people because I'm good at what I do, but I still get it wrong 95% of the time. That's fine, provided that the five percent within that five percent is you know 
the occasional Uber or Dropbox or Airbnb or what have you, like a true a true breakthrough. Um, and but you can't tell what they are up front. And and so the, what I call the innovation paradox is the idea that good ideas look like good ideas, but great ideas look like bad ideas. And great ideas look like bad ideas because they tend to challenge our assumptions in some way. You know, a good a, a good idea looks like a good idea because it normally is just an incremental advancement on something that we already understand and is and is well you know is 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 well understood and sounds sensible on some level. Like I don't know, like Uber was always a good idea. I don't think it's really a great idea, but you know, like more been able to see how far away you know the killer the killer app really of Uber was just the certainty of how close your cab was, which is which used to be the bit that used to drive everyone crazy. I don't mind waiting for a cab; it's not knowing how long I'm waiting, having to be out on the street just forever. That you know, it's a great idea, but like not, you know, just a simple actually extension of that. Wouldn't it be good to just know where they were in proximity to you? Good idea. Whereas Airbnb, I think, was a little bit more of a great idea because it, it, it kind of changed some fundamental assumptions about how people interacted. And a lot of people said that will never work. For a long time, people said people are not going to let strangers come and stay inside their house. Like that's just not something people would do. And that's often characteristics of a great idea um, is that people will say it won't work. People will never do that. The thing is, they'll mostly be right, you know, because most most ideas proposing that people are going to do something completely different or interact in a new way um, are, in fact, going to be proven false. People are kind of stubborn often in their habits and, and, and beliefs and what have you. Um, but you can't differentiate the ones that, you know, will work from those that won't other than by running experiments, other than by trying stuff. Um, and so that's been kind of the gap for the when it comes to social innovation is actually lots of money when you when you look at you know philanthropy plus government plus now the emerging impact investment sector which is already you know expected to hit like two trillion dollars next year or something that's growing really fast but but at the more conservative end still in, in across all of those we have an angel investment and an impact angel gap so the so the, the the social change world writ large is a little bit like a world with all vcs and but no angels and I think part of the key, one of the key gaps between those two groups is not just what they look for, but actually whose money has been invested. VCs invest other people's money. Angels invest their money. That makes all the difference in the world. Because when you're investing your money, you can do it for whatever reason is most important to you. You can be as purposeful as you want to be. You can be as curious as you want to be. You can just support your friends. And that's really important too. You know, you can just be, you know, you can just back people. I'm a big believer in that. It doesn't always have to like stack up on a spreadsheet. You're just like, I believe in that, in that person or just they've been there for me, I'm going to be there for them. Those are all really fundamental, core, important human motivations that all get stripped away when you're investing someone else's money. You're not allowed to invest someone else's money because you're super curious. You're not allowed to invest someone else's money because you just love this guy and believe in them and really want to see what happens next. You can't invest someone else's money because you're just like, this is important for the world and it aligns with my purpose. And so the act of ever investing other people's money forces this conservative and because you have to be able to justify it, Say so I invested your money because, and that requires that you you point to something beyond your own motivations, your own instincts, your own beliefs, which puts you back on the spreadsheet, which requires then that they be investable in this spreadsheet context. So my great frustration with impact, you know, this has always been the problem with philanthropy, lots of money, but everyone wanting to support things already proven to work. How do we prove new things work? You know, that'd be fine if the world itself evolved really slowly, but we live in a world that evolves really fast. So we have to build the capacity to innovate rapidly. Um, social enterprise should be better at this to come right back to the very start of your question. Sorry for such a long-winded answer, but, but isn't so far because sadly we're seeing in some ways while social enterprise and impact investment. So this is specifically talking about social enterprises that are structured as for-profits. 
um, but which have a very clear impact model. And that, they can be very successful startups. You know, you look in the Australian context and Sendle, the delivery startup, Car Next Door, recently purchased by Uber, but that was an impact investment, clearly has a strong environmental benefits of car sharing um, and so on. So they can be very commercially successful companies. But at the moment, sadly, the impact investors will only invest in companies that non-impact investors would invest in. They want there to also be impact, but they won't they won't um they won't trade off any of their financial expectations for impact. So provided that you are able to tick all the usual boxes in terms of your traction, investability, and so on, then they want impact as well. And that means once again that there's uh, you know there's both a conservative there's a real conservatism on the on the you know where you have to be and the, the level of data and, and, and evidence you need. Um, and there's also I think more deeply that when it comes to impact investing, a lot of the early players in the space still feel like they're proving the model, proving that you can invest only in impactful companies and earn traditional financial returns. And so everyone I think is stressed that like one big failure will will kind of Will will prove the whole model wrong in 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 front of people's eyes, which is which is sad. You know, that's a lack of confidence in our own story and our own beliefs and our own our our impact. We should be past that, but we're not. That that everyone's just trying to everyone's trying to bat hundred percent on everything to say, see, you can do it, but you can't increment your way to the better world we need. We we do need innovation, and that requires we get much better at thinking about how to support things not yet proven to work, so that they can do the work of proving or or not proving that it works. Yeah, that that's uh, an amazingly um, helpful definition around innovation. That um, if if you're really extending an idea or a model that's already there, you could be innovative, but it's not necessarily innovation. And um, what I think I'm hearing in your response, and please correct me if I go off on a tangent here, is that um, true innovation is very risky, and you're going to probably have more failures than you're going to have successes, and that in the um, non-entrepreneurial business world is a massive red flag to those that want to see ongoing profitability. And um, I look, I can understand the dilemma. If only you could um, get more angel, thousands or billions more angel investors that are prepared to come in without those strings attached. And I, and I can understand from a, from the corporate world point of view when you've got governance arrangements and you are managing other people's money or, or um, and I, I could only anything that came to mind as you were giving your definition there was around um, superannuation funds that they invest money in low, high, and and medium yeah. risk investments because they, I guess in that world they understand that um, people that are investing for their own retirement that they want to try and see if they can push things and, and get a super normal profit if they can, but if not, they've got all those bases covered, and um, I would be a special kind of idiot if I said I have the answer for you, but it's 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 a very wicked problem to have. But it also suggests to me that you'll have more people wanting to work in this space to try and find the answer to the the mm. agile problem, or at or at least come up with a process to navigate what you've painted is uh, potentially some complex thinking. And um, we we think we do have one solution, right? Okay, yep. Yep. Which is you've got to give more people the opportunity to invest their own money in things they believe in. And so that's crowdfunding, in other words. And that's why we started with crowdfunding. You know, as I was thinking about this, we do a, a much more diverse array of things now, but we began life as a pure crowdfunding platform for social impact projects. Um, and 
that was after, you know, my original co-founder, Alex Bidder and I, and I had had a big brainstorm as to how do we help more people get on the social entrepreneurship journey? How do we increase the pace of innovation, reduce the barriers a little bit? And we, and we believe that social entrepreneurs need, all entrepreneurs really, need three core types of, of, of capital, financial capital, but also intellectual capital. So learning how to do things or accessing smart people who, who can do those things. And then relational capital. You know, it's really important to be in community with people who care about you and, and who maybe are on a similar journey because um, burnout is one of the great sources of failure in all entrepreneurial endeavors, in all innovation endeavors, um, because of those setbacks, inevitably, that you talked about. Um, and, you know, we wanted to do all three, but, you know, at the very beginning, it's often risky to try and do, you know, all things at once. And so we thought financial was the place to start because that's kind of the one people often lack for the others, but they are often very focused on their lack around the financial piece. And so we're thinking about this absolutely, you know, this lack of angel investment capital. We thought, what are some other approaches? What, what else are we seeing? And at the time, I, I, you know, also quite involved in creative communities, the Burning Man community in America. So I'd seen the, the rise of Kickstarter over the previous couple of years, massively used by those communities. And a bit of a light bulb went off for us that they're solving the same problem in a different context. But in the, crea the creative worlds used to also be very conservative because it was a world of gatekeepers that if you were a musician, no one even got to hear, you think that that's about audiences liking music, but it's, it wasn't, it was, about re it was about record labels liking music. Because if you couldn't get a record label on board, you couldn't get played on the radio, no one could hear you, no one could even get to decide if they liked you for yourself. And so there's famous stories, like the famous ones, I forget the exact number, but the Beatles were knocked back by 70 record labels or something. I mean, that's like, why? now why was that? Because their music was innovative. It didn't sound like what came before. And so experts are really bad at picking successful innovation actually and the thing i always think about that i think we don't ask ourselves enough is how many musical geniuses on the same level as the beatles did we miss out on because they didn't have the personal resilience of the beatles most people are not going to pitch to the 70th record label the beatles did and that's why we got the beatles in the world but maybe one more no and the beatles might never have existed that's a classic innovation challenge and the way that kickstarter got around that of course was by allowing uh, artists to connect directly with audiences who then could say, I want to hear more of your music, but instead of me having to put my career on the line, spend tens of thousands of dollars, sign you to a giant contract, and I can just chip in $30 and then you'll send me your new CD or whatever. And that changed, and that, that changed, obviously record labels still play an important role, but it changed some of the event. What you often see now is that musicians prove there's an audience for their work and then get signed by record labels. And, and so that's what we're also seeing now, social change that social entrepreneurs prove that there is some audience for their work some community willing to support and of course they take those funds and spend them to build evidence to do things that then allow them to collect data and evidence and every additional piece of evidence means you can kind of open the next door hopefully for that person who's a little bit more risk averse than the previous person but now you have a little bit more evidence and then hopefully you can get their funds and do more build more evidence and you, and you get to that next level and and so on a very simple level part of how crowdfunding or crowdfunding works is allows you to spread risk differently that you know someone needs fifty thousand dollars to do a high risk activity i mean i wouldn't give them fifty thousand dollars either I, I understand why foundations and government are not giving them fifty thousand they're stuck in a bit of a world where they tend to fund all of something or none of it it's a fifty thousand dollar project do we want to fund that whole project not with curry but it's easy to chip fifty dollars into a cool risky interesting project and it doesn't it doesn't work oh well they gave it a go that was pretty cool um, it was only $50, you know, people invest what they can. And so just that flexibility of being able to, as they say in the phone, you know, amortize the risk, um, fractionalize the risk across 
numbers and, and that allows everyone to find their own acceptable risk level. I might think this project, you know, I'm only in for 50, but you feel comfortable giving them $500, whatever it is, someone else might give them $5,000 and they ultimately get to their $50,000. No one would have given them $50,000. Um, and you even see that cascading risk tolerance within a crowdfunding campaign, that the hardest contributions are the very first ones. But as each new person contributes, it becomes a little bit easier, a little bit safer feeling for the next person to contribute. Because they're like, at a certain point, you go, hundreds of people trust this person. Who am I not to trust them? They've got, they've got, you know, they've kind of evidenced that they've, they're doing something right. Um, and so we've just actually, that's, you know, always been, that's where we started. We then moved a lot into capacity building because I guess to that point I said before, people often think what they're lacking is financial capital, but actually there's something else they're lacking. So the problem with running a crowdfunding campaign is people only turn up when they already think they're crowdfundable. Yeah. And the truth is they're often not, particularly people with less experience, people with a lived experience, but who've never launched something before. They kind of don't have clear, they don't have a clear model in their mind. They don't have any past experience that tells them kind of where do you need to get to in order to then pitch it? You know, how much clarity is required? How much development? Um, depending on who you are, a pure idea may be enough. If you have lots of runs on the board and already cultivated community, you're, you may be able to crowdfund just off your idea. You see that sometimes, but rarely. For most people, they're going to have to do, do design, show snippets, give us a demo, something, um, get endorsements, various things that obviously make it feel safer for us. So we've been there for 12 years. And last year, we introduced a new flavor of crowdfunding platform, which is a crowd lending platform for growth-ready impact enterprises. And it's the exact same idea in a way that we're trying to unblock that impact investment sector, which is so stuck on this fund model. There's almost no... The only people who actually invest in companies work, tend to be impact investment funds. Again, and obviously there's a, a logic to a fund. There's minimums. The minimum you can normally put in for is a million dollars. And then the minimum they will invest is usually a million, sometimes two million. So even if they were, you know, just just the because the cost of due diligence for them is the same when they put in 50,000 or when they put in two million. So the logic for them is always you want to do bigger deals because it's vastly more capital efficient for them. But that's left this big space in the marketplace where it's relatively easy not really easy but compared to other stages lots of ways to raise your first fifty thousand. crowdfunding accelerators some some a handful of good kind of innovation oriented grants and then it's pretty easy to raise a million dollars if you've got the runs on board if you've got the right metrics there's lots of people who'd love to give you a million dollars for your impact enterprise if you're at that stage and there's almost no one in between um, and that's where Lend for Good is allowing people to find individual enterprises, invest as little as $500, get that money back relatively quickly, unlike equity crowdfunding, which is another example of this, but with very long-term and uncertain trade-offs. This is specifically for growth-ready impact enterprises, so it's not for brand new launches. You do need to have some runs on the board, a somewhat predictable model. It can't be pure innovation. It's, it's about scaling up something, you know, so we'd say innovation still starts in good, test the new idea, find your, your, your early adopters, your first supporters. But then when something has become sufficiently predictable, that debt is a good instrument for you, that you are confident that if you had $100,000, you could generate $110,000 in return or more than that, hopefully, but, you know, pay back a loan with interest. There's actually heaps of enterprises at that stage, but they're just still too small for the, the fund-based investors. So there's a huge market out there, huge market of enterprises that actually have fairly robust proven models, but are capital constrained. They weren't venture funded from the start. They're bootstrapped, which means they, they struggle to, even when they've proved that something works, they just haven't got the capital to invest in scaling it up. And on the other hand, we think there's lots of people who we see get really excited about the opportunity to invest in specific social enterprises, doing specific awesome work in the world, 
from as little as $500. It's a, just a great experience. And so we're trying to, you know, again, and the, the beauty of platforms is when they can bring these two markets that have complementary needs together to, to, to solve each other's problem. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to be playing in that space or you are playing in that space. It, um, I have to say I've, I've had a, a really good listen here in social enterprises and, and some um, some assumptions I had have been blown out of the water. So I appreciate that, mate. But let, let me get to the nub for me of this and why I wanted to bring this back to leadership is from your experiences, Tom, where do you see the role of leadership is in that innovation context, and I, I want to ask you the following: it, It's it's mm. one question with multiple bits to it. Mm. Are leaders the source of that innovation, or entrepreneurs the source of that innovation? Are they enablers of innovation, or some combination of the two? Definitely some combination in different contexts, but I, I think the reason that leadership is the right word, even, is because I think innovation always involves risk. And I truly, and I think entrepreneurship always involves risks. And I think true leadership is about leading people through conditions of uncertainty. I think that once things are highly certain, it's not really leadership that's required, it's management. Um, and there's, you know, I'm not here to define these things precisely, but I think there is a different flavor there that we all recognize. And there's certain people who are good at the, you know, everything's well-defined, there's good processes in place. And now we're doing just, you know, Q&A and performance management and so on around that versus people who are leading into that unknown, trying new things. Um, and so I think that while there are no doubt, there are certainly very important forms of leadership that are, are not entrepreneurial. To me, entrepreneurship always involves leadership, as does supporting entrepreneurship. One of the things I often preach to big, um, to bigger foundations and so on when I have the chance to speak to them at conferences and so on is that they don't actually need to be innovative. They often feel a lot of pressure to be innovative, but they're fundamentally bad at it, actually, just because of the pressures of big organizations. And this is true everywhere, I think. Like, big companies are not very innovative either. We, even the companies we think of as the most innovative of the world, you know, say, take Google, for example. What was the last successful innovation that was actually developed in-house at Google? It's really hard to think of one. Everything they built in-house, Google, Wave, la la, has mostly failed. The big successes are the stuff they bought in. YouTube, um, their, uh, even their, their kind of their self-driving car unit, that's not a big success yet, but uh, what else? Google Maps, uh, 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 a bunch of stuff. Um, Android. You know, most of the most of their successful innovations from the last 10 years have been purchased. And that's how innovation tends to happen. Small groups of people willing to take those risks. Big organizations are not going to take big risks. Now, sometimes they get good at doing things like, you know, hot housing, putting them off in a different, you know, but that again is the same context. You try and create something that feels like a small organization um, outside of the big organization. But there's, I think, a, a certain conservative that always emerges in big organizations where there are too many layers of approval, too many people involved, too many, you know, too many chefs in, in the kitchen and so i don't know that it's the right place for innovation to occur i think but what they need to get good at is how to engage with innovation how to foster innovation and that often means being an early supporter and i think that requires leadership as well that first follow idea you know it's it, it can often feel very risky to be a first follower of innovation as well um so some of our most successful programs, you know, for instance we've run a program with ing for many years and one of the things that has made that program so successful is they've been willing to be a first supporter on new social enterprises. And that's really hard to get that first reasonable sized corporate to give you anything and to endorse you in any way. They're often really risk averse about these things for reputation. You know, they have more on the line, reputation and lots of customers and media scrutiny and so on. Um, but we we got to actually do a, a big audit of that program. We've been running this program called Dream Startup for seven years leading up to two years ago. And during COVID did a big audit of it instead of, you know, just running it 
every year as we had been. We, it stopped for a couple of years, but we did some analysis. Um, and two things struck out. One was that that growth challenge I was telling you about before. We'd supported 70 or so emerging B2C impact enterprises, so all product focused is kind of ING's things, stuff that their customers might also like to buy. Um, and of those, more than two thirds were still trading, which was amazing for an eight-year-old program. And, and of those, the, that approximate third that shut down half in the previous 18 months, so COVID casualties. But incredible, incredible survival rates, actually, because, you know, purpose-driven, resilient entrepreneurs who'd found something that worked sufficiently to allow them to keep doing it, pay salaries and so on. But hardly any of them had really grown, had scaled. And it's just that lack of capital to allow for that scale, especially for the, those that are for-profits at the moment. The philanthropy is doing a better job of supporting some of the ones that are structured as non-profits, allows them to receive philanthropic support while also doing business activities. That can be a nice blend for some. On the for-profit side, there isn't an equivalent appetite. Um, but but to come back to the point, I think being that first follower um, is really, I'm fond of, I'm sure you and many of your your viewers would have seen before that classic um, first follower video from the Sasquatch Music Festival with the crazy guy dancing and then the first guy comes up and then it becomes a movement. I'm really fond of showing people that video because I think it really does show that, yeah, while it takes a certain, it, does, it certainly does take courage and risk to be that crazy dancing guy. In my experience, actually, the crazy dancing guy equivalents are very driven. So in some ways, it doesn't even feel like they're not even aware. Just like he was, he was so in it. He wasn't aware. He wasn't feeling that risk, actually, because he was so in his purpose, so to speak, in the moment into something. But, you know, that he's just he's just in his context, his bubble in many ways. And in some ways, that's what a lot of founders are like. Like, it feels like I'm doing something that's really risky, but actually, like, I'm so single-minded that I'm not even aware of that fact. It's just, it's just what I'm doing. This is just what I'm about. I can't, it's hard to even imagine the other thing I would be doing. People often ask me, you know, you know, my, you know, it wouldn't have been easier to just kind of get a, a corporate job. And in some ways, I even have my, my head, I have trouble wrapping my head around that counterfactual. I'm like, it doesn't sound like me, but I would I, I have done that. Um, the first follower is often the person who's aware, who's seen the crazy dancing guy, is aware that all these people are looking at them, but is still willing to step up next to them. And in some ways, I think it's a very different type of courage, but it's an essential form of leadership and courage and that could be you know there's lots of ways to do that that are relatively low risk but it's just allowing it's just been willing again to support things that are not yet proven to work and to not be agonized over the fact that things that, that some percentage of things not yet proven to work will in fact not work and that's not a disaster that's nothing to be ashamed of it's all just part of the process of trying to build a better world yeah i fully fully agree in fact um i have a lot of time and i admire people that have a higher threshold and tolerance of um, ambiguity and risk than I do. And I think it, it's, I think for me, and this is a personal view, that's either in your DNA or it's not. I don't think you can teach people to be more tolerant of risk. Um, you can. No, you can't, but you can the, totally change the risks. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't deny that. I'm just saying on an individual level, if, if you're fundamentally hardwired to be, conservative and i don't mean that conservative politically conservative in your approach to risk taking that yeah. has its own set of barriers but yeah I, I totally agree and and you've made this point through the discussion and it's a good one that um changing the context or impacting the context in which you operate can maybe change what that risk profile looks like and um i one thing you said before i've, I've lived in the world of government grants and they either go all in or don't at all, it would be interesting and quite a quite a change of pace if you had particularly federal governments that would fund those smaller scale 
projects to the amount that you were talking about before that maybe it's not the $50,000 grant, but maybe it's two grand towards something and to help build that, um, the need to have some capital because any way you cut it, you're going to need some funds to do what it is that you're doing to get off the ground if you're going to be viable um, longer term. And a but... good way they can do that. Sorry, yeah, no, you're right. Yep. I think there are a couple of governments that have done that better. And I think one one approach that I think kind of works for everyone is I'm a bit biased. I run an intermediary that does a lot of capacity building services, but it's to fund intermediaries that provide opportunities. That's what it's called. In the US, they call that the Israel model. Israel really over indexes for startups. And it's because the Israeli government has pumped money into the intermediary sector. There's a disproportionate number of accelerators, co working spaces, entrepreneurial programs. There should be. And in some ways, that creates that condition that more people get to try more things at lower risk. They get that support. Uh, the government doesn't have to pick winners. The government's not directly funding projects. The fact that, you know, that the accelerator it can be a success even as 80% of its companies fail. And so it provides government, I think, with less of that anxiety on a case-by-case basis about individual startups failing and gets them thinking more about the ecosystem. And actually, you know, just it's the volume of things that gets tried will tend to fairly naturally if if more people get to try more things with a reasonable amount of, you know, infrastructure and support around them, we'll just find more things that work. That's just how it goes. Um, and so Victoria, I think, in Australia has done that particularly well through Launch Vic and Startup Vic and so on. Um, and it's interesting, actually, look at on the eastern sea coast of Australia, and it, this, it may not be as distinct now, but I remember a few years ago, I, I got to thinking about how, how different the approaches of the three governments were in terms of they all want more startups, more entrepreneurship, that you know, starting people want more social entrepreneurship as well, but particularly, you know, entrepreneurship, startups, very, so hot right now. Um, Victoria does it by funding intermediaries or inf- what I would call you know, infrastructure, lots of, you know, lots of fu- support for co-working spaces, conferences, convenings, um, uh, accelerators, courses, lots of funded courses, lots of free places, lots of great opportunities, lots of chances for feedback, mentorship, learning, etc. Um, New South Wales is more about giant projects. So $100 million into the Sydney Startup Hub. $50 million into the Sydney School for Entrepreneurship, another giant project just opened, the Western Sydney Startup Hub. They love big buildings. They love putting in a big project and then they can you know, cut the ribbon. And, and that's a form of infrastructure. Sydney Startup Hub has been, I think, good for the sector here and kind of giving it more of a center of gravity and, and, and increasing. Um, and then Queensland used to just bribe startups to move to Queensland. They had a couple of different programs. So they're like, if you move your start to Queensland, we'll give you $50,000. And I think on some level that actually does a lot as well. If you just bring in 15 new energetic startups with teams that no 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 tom not not a bribe an incentive an incentive, incentive to move. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, they funded but in some ways less focused on the local and more that we will stimulate the local by bringing in more startups from other places that already have a bit of traction and that will create more mentors examples inspiration jobs um etc so but i'm a bit of a believer in the victorian strategy as the as the the one that i i think I, I've seen, I think, be most successful that, that both provides that opportunity I really care about, but but does so in a way that understands that government is not going to be a high-risk angel investor on a company-by-company basis. They need to fund other types of things that, you know, tick their boxes and their their needs in a different way. And I think there's a way of bringing that together. And, and did I want an individual organization uh, basis, you know, you can do what like what ING has done with us, you know, create a program that brings really interesting early stage social start- impact startups or organizations to you around a, around a particular theme. Um, or you could, you know, as simple as, you know, one example I sometimes use is Friends of the Earth in London have a program that provides some free office space. They have a big building in the middle of London, super valuable space. And so they, they host like four 
nonprofit or campaigning or social impact startup kind of new things a year in their space. And that just provides a lot of a lot of learning for their staff as well. And that content with that fostering innovation, partnering with innovation, being willing to be an early, you know, a first supporter of innovation is at least as important as the actual on, you know, the actual innovator, I think. Um, because you need you need you need all of those, you know, not just the inventors. Um yeah, no, hard to get uh, anywhere. But it's not just money. <laughs> I actually think it's not money at first. This is I think a mistake some people make, Eric, not to go on too much of another tangent, I hope. But people often think I need money to do anything, but actually you often need you often need support and money is one form of support. But what do you need money for to pay for things, right? What is it you need to pay for? Just do people have that thing anyway? And might they be willing to give you the thing that you otherwise thought you needed money to pay for? Like maybe office space, like accounting, like whatever the things that you think you need to pay for to pay for, it is often actually easier to sell your story, pitch yourself to the providers of those things directly and see if you can access them. And that's again a way of often feels less risky for people. Yeah, um, in, in, a huge, in a huge way, and, and can allow you to make that progress yeah. and build that evidence. Yeah, yeah, because um, uh, I like that uh, that angle there around what is a cost of getting things off the ground. Well, if you had a business space, and that could usually be forty percent of any income you're bringing in. If that if that's provided, then it's one less issue around raising funds that you need to be necessarily worried about. And um, yeah. yeah, space in the middle of London for. Um, Social entrepreneur, uh, social enterprises to start up is is prob- probably gold in the sense mm. that, yeah, you got a space in in the middle of a key um key city center, and yeah, I, I like that idea of, um, if you can help create the infrastructure and the fundamentals around what you need to to foster innovation, then hopefully they will come build the infrastructure and they will come and um yeah, yeah no I I get that look Tom. This has been an amazing discussion. Thank you for for helping me link that in a lot of ways to leadership. And and there are vast amount of more questions I want to ask you, but I think we can um, come back again. And uh, definitely so for those that are listening, how can they get in touch with you, mate, if they want to talk more about the, the this social enterprise space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess check out you know check out start some good. We we've built a whole ecosystem of opportunities. Where our, our goal is to help more people essentially get get their impact ideas out of their head and into the world, where it can make a real difference. And we do that in a variety of ways through these days two flavors of crowdfunding platform, Lend for Good, and StartSomeGood.com. But we also deliver a range of courses and capacity building programs, including a membership community of of, of founders or early stage social entrepreneurs called the Start Some Good Network, which is a, a low monthly cost. You get invited to five events a month on an, an online peer space. So startsandgood.com to really read about all of that. Um, as I said, we also partner with many like, more established organizations, companies and institutions to then build programs or deliver programs that support the, that early stage social innovator if they're looking to foster innovation in their particular area of interest or, or, or key cause area. Um, for me personally, oh, and then start some good on all the main networks, you know, at start some good on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, for me personally, LinkedIn's the main the main place that I share kind of somewhat more thoughtful thoughts. A bit of a broken sentence about <laughs> social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, fundraising, so on, and then Twitter for you know sharing links and stuff like that. So I'm at Tom JD on Twitter, and then if you just look up Tom Dawkins, um, I should probably be the first one at the top of the list in LinkedIn. If that doesn't work, just Tom Dawkins starts some good in search will certainly find me. That was Tom Dawkins. I'd like to thank Tom for his time and sharing his ideas around leadership, innovation and social enterprise. 
As always, thanks for supporting the podcast. You can help by dropping a like on this particular episode or you can become a subscriber to help me grow the channel. Stay safe. Thanks for your time and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.